Now let us turn to the New Testament scriptures as we read this morning in the book of First Peter, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. First Peter 5, verses 1 through 11. And the subject, as you will notice, of part of this passage concerns our adversary, the devil. To the elders among you I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Once more, may our gracious Lord bless to our understanding this passage from his own word. Now, on these Sunday mornings, as many of you are aware, we are considering a number of separate and individual biblical topics, all of which have to do with living the Christian life. And we have been doing this together for several Sunday mornings under the general title of Life in the Spirit. And you will recall that we began with the subject of worshipping in the Spirit from John chapter 4 and then of walking in the Spirit from Romans chapter 8 and witnessing in the Spirit from 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and till we reached last Sunday morning and our quarterly communion celebration, the very appropriate subject from 1 Corinthians 11 of communion with Christ. Now this morning I have felt very bound in spirit to deal with another subject and topic biblically that has a great deal to do with life in the spirit, and it deals with our adversary, the devil. And it comes, of course, from part of the passage that we have read this morning as the New Testament scripture reading, where in verses 8 and 9, you remember, 
we saw the apostles' closing warning to those to whom he wrote, but the devil, who is our adversary or enemy, is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour and who we are therefore to resist faithfully and steadfastly. Now, beloved, I suggest that we need this subject this morning under the umbrella heading of living in the Spirit because the Christian life, as many of you have realized, is no bed of roses and that the apostles' word in the book of Acts and chapter 14 to those young churches that it is through much tribulation that we must enter the kingdom of God, his word is very apt and very scripturally true still for the Christian life today. And it is very striking that as Peter ends this great letter and book of his, in which he has outlined so richly the many privileges and advantages of the Christian in living the Christian life, ends with a very sober warning that we have a serious adversary with which we must contend, a serious enemy, who opposes us in every step of the Christian life. And that all the privileges and advantages that he has displayed before us do not give us ground for overconfidence or carelessness or indulgence in living our Christian lives. There is an adversary who is always active and is everywhere seeking an opportunity to overwhelm us and overthrow us as the people of God. And it's so important, I suggest to you, for God's people to have an understanding of that old deluder, Satan, the adversary of us all. Now you well know that in military tactics, the tacticians tell us that the best way of defeating the enemy is that you should know your enemy, who he is, where he is coming from, where he's going to, what he wants to do, if possible, what his plans of conquest really are. And that is why, as we look at these verses, 8 and 9, with a passing reference to verses 10 and 11, that we are going to see, I believe, the devil defined, and then something of the devil's designs, and then perhaps most important of all this morning, the devil's defeat. Now I want you, with your Bible open then this morning, to look at this passage with me as we consider, first of all, the devil defined. And we have that in verse 8 of First Peter chapter 5 in the second part of the verse, you notice, where the apostle says, your enemy or your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, I remember in my studies of church history a number of years ago coming across an old law that reflected in Puritan times upon the colony of Massachusetts here in the United States, a law that was passed, I believe, in the year 16. 
1947, and it had a most unusual and almost unique title to it. It was called The Old Deluder Satan Act. And the purpose, interestingly enough, was to warn all the people of that Puritan colony that they needed to have in their hearts a knowledge of the Word of God. Otherwise, they would be deluded by the adversary, their adversary, the devil, by that tricky and wily and most dangerous fellow. And I believe I'm correct in saying that that law, with its strange name, extended to what is now Maine and Vermont and New Hampshire as they were associated with Massachusetts in those early times of settlement. You see, our forefathers took seriously the existence and the power of the evil one. But today, men tend to think of the devil as something of amusement, like a little child that shortly we may see on the streets in this so-called season of Halloween, in a Halloween costume with red horns and a pitchfork and other accoutrements. And the existence of Satan is so often ridiculed today, or if it is spoken of at all, it is explained away. And we know, of course, that Satan is a master of camouflage, and there is nothing in which he delights better or more than to encourage people not to believe in his real existence and his real power. But this is not what Scripture teaches. Your adversary, the devil, who is going about continually like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. It is not the teaching of the Apostle Paul that Satan is to be ignored or to be ridiculed in Ephesians 6 verse 12 as he reminds us that we fight or wrestle against not flesh and blood at all, but spiritual wickedness in high places, the rulers of the darkness of this present world. And he would teach us that there is a battle going on really and continually, even though with our physical eyes we are not conscious of the angels in heaven, as it were, battling the demons of hell for the very souls and hearts of men, including the hearts of God's elect children in this world. Therefore, it's so necessary for us to know who Satan is, Satan defined, to ask ourselves the question, what is he like in Scripture, and who is he? What is his identity? And we can read certain books today, Christian books, that are helpful, such as Frank Baretti's books, This Present Darkness and Piercing This Darkness, and even more, that famed author C.S. Lewis, although in some respects we consider him a quasi-Christian, his book, The Screwtape Letters, has been very helpful in outlining the existence and the designs of Satan. But our source is to be Scripture. And you notice that there are three descriptive names then describing Satan in this passage. Look at them with me. 
He is our adversary, or in the King James Version rendering, our enemy. Now, it's very interesting because it is the English translation of the Greek word and antidikos. And it arose in the judicial system of the ancient Greek courts, where you would go into the court and you would face an adversary in litigation. You would have some case that you wanted to settle, but there opposing your case would be the antidikos, the enemy, the adversary, the opponent in a lawsuit who would contest every statement that you made in supporting your case. And the word, for instance, is used in Luke 12, verse 58, where Jesus says, if you go into court with your accuser, before you ever come to the magistrate, seek to settle the issue with your adversary. The same word again. Lest coming before the judge, Jesus said, you be condemned by him and sent with shame to prison. And it occurs again in Luke 18, verse 3, in the great parable Jesus taught on prayer and being importunate or persevering in prayer, where you remember it was because the unjust judge saw the woman continually coming to him that he would finally vindicate her cause, and the word is used in that passage. Now what surely it says to us is this, that the devil appears in opposition to the Christian before God's bar of justice. You see this in Scripture in the book of Job, in chapters 1 and 2, when the sons of God appeared before the Lord in heaven, evidently a, a, a reference to the holy angels of God, and Satan came among them, as was his right, for he also is an angel and a son of God, albeit a fallen one as the scriptures teach us. But he came as the enemy of Job. And you remember that when the Lord drew the attention of the angels of God to the example of godly Job upon the earth and said, Is there ever a man like this? Have you seen another like Job, my servant? That Satan the adversary came in and said, ah, but he is not serving God for nothing. Look what he's getting out of it. Take away his possessions and his family and his health, and he will curse you to your face. The adversary, the enemy, who is continually appearing in opposition to God's people. And even in this life, beloved, we see that he impedes our spiritual progress at every turn. No sooner is there one victory over evil that we have achieved than he confronts us with another barrier that we must overcome in turn. And he is continually opposing our spiritual progression from conversion to our coronation in glory. The adversary. But you notice the second term is the devil, and this is his most common name, Diabolos. And it means the slanderer or false accuser, the same as the word Satan in the Old Testament scriptures. And we see many instances of this in scripture, too frequent for me to mention them. 
Again, in the first and second chapter of the book of Job, in the book of Zechariah, chapter 3, verse 1, where Joshua, the high priest, stands before the Lord and Satan is standing to accuse him at Joshua's right hand. And the word suggests a malicious enemy who makes accusations and presses false charges against God's people. And again we see this, even here on earth, in this book of First Peter. If you look at First Peter 2, verse 12, the writer says that even here on earth, men are speaking against you as Christians and as wrongdoers, when, of course, you are doing no wrong whatever. In chapter 3, verse 16, when you are abused, says Peter, those who abuse you should be put to shame by your good conduct and your good works. Who is behind that abuse and that slander against God's people as wrongdoers? It is Diabolos, the slanderer, the Satan. And it gives us in our English word, as you well know, the term diabolical when there is a devilish scheme afoot. It's interesting, the Greek word is a combination of dia, meaning between, and balo, which means to throw, diabolos. And if ever there is one who throws, as it were, a spanner in the works, in our lives as Christians, it is the diabolos, the devil. Now, the third term, you notice, is that he is a roaring lion, and this is a terrifying picture of his ravenous desire to sweep the Christian into his clutches, and if it were possible, to destroy him. It's a very evocative picture of Satan's activity and of his power and of his cruelty that the great ministry of this evil one is not to give life, but to take it. Not to build Christ's church, but to destroy it. And listen, beloved, in this definition of the devil, Peter is telling us that the empire of devilry runs right up to the gates of the Christian's life. In every direction that we look, in other words, his destructive mouth is open on every side. This enemy, this diabolos, this roaring lion, he comes amongst God's people in order to disrupt and to destroy. Now that's where we are this morning. The empire of Devilry, beloved, runs right up to our own gates. But look you secondly at the devil's designs, again in the second part of verse 8. What is his design? Well, says Peter, he is seeking whom he may devour. He is an adversary who is always active, who is always cruel, who is always looking for an opportunity to overwhelm and to destroy. His aim is to sow discord and break fellowship and make malicious and untrue suggestion and misrepresentation. 
and so on and so forth. And he is intent upon planning the Christian's defeat to bring us back into the muck and the mire and the pit of sin, if that is possible, to destroy the Christian's testimony is his great goal. Now we know that in Peter's day, what Peter certainly had in mind here in this very evocative expression and description of the roaring lion, what he had in mind was the persecution that the Christians were suffering under the Roman emperor Nero to ruin the testimony of God's church by its destruction, if that were possible. But you see, we need to ask ourselves today, where does he operate in his designs today? And certainly he operates by persecution. That goes without saying. But let me give you three spheres in which we are bound to resist him in our day and age this ravenous and roaring lion. And the first of these three is in our personal lives. Satan begins his work to destroy and undermine the testimony of the church to Christ by beginning with us. Now, how does he do it? Time would fail me this morning, but let me suggest to you several areas in our personal lives. He comes to us to encourage us to doubt our salvation and to doubt the graciousness of the Lord to us and his goodness and mercy toward us. Now you see an instance of this supremely in the Old Testament in Psalm 73 where you may remember the godly writer of that psalm begins by describing how he was envious at the way in which the ungodly prospered. They were wealthy. They had an easy life. They had good health. Everything seemed to be in their favor. And here was this man serving the Lord in a sacrificial way and at great personal cost and facing only trouble and hardship and difficulty in the pilgrim path. And he began to ask the question, how and why are these things so? And he began to doubt God's goodness in salvation to him. But thanks be to God, by the end of that great psalm, he is saying again, Whom have I on earth but thee? And who is there in heaven beside thee but I desire? But you see, through doubt, Satan comes to drag us down that we may live a defeated Christian life. And he brings discouragement in. And he lays us low. And we need to go back to Scripture as he he assaults us in this way. Back to the book of 1 John that we've been in on Sunday evenings, where we have again and again, by this we know, by this we know, that we belong to the children of God. And we are not to trust our feelings of doubt but to trust the facts of God's word and depend upon them. Now, a second area in our personal lives is distance, you know. And by that I mean when we begin to be encouraged to slack off in our private devotions, first for a day, and then for a few days, and a little later for a week, 
And then before we know it, a whole month has passed away. And there is a distance between us and the Lord. And we are out of fellowship with him. And beloved, backsliding into sin does not happen overnight. It begins with a little trickle that ends up in being an enormous and expansive flood because Satan creates distance between the believer and his Lord. You remember how Peter in the Gospels at the end of the ministry of Christ after his arrest is said to have followed him at a distance. And how did that come about? Not in a moment. It began a long time before, when at Caesarea Philippi, having confessed Christ as Savior and Lord, as the Christ of God, Peter rebuked his Lord for feeling the necessity to deliver himself up to death in Jerusalem. And then you see Peter falling asleep in the garden of the agony. Little by little, there was distance between Peter and his Lord until you find Scripture recording the fact that Peter followed at a distance and sat with the company that were enemies of Christ and denied his Lord with curses and blasphemy. The progression of sin is so terrible. And it's so important to walk closely with him that the arch enemy of the Christian soul does not gain footing in his personal life. And then there is discouragement, isn't there? Not only doubt and distance, but discouragement. How many lives have been ruined by it? How much it has hindered God's work? And how much we need to realize God is greater than our circumstances. And the message, again, of the book of 1 John should ring in our ears from these Sunday evenings. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We are to stand on God's word. We are to be supported by the Holy Spirit against the evil spirit when doubt and distance and discouragement are pressed into our lives by Satan, the adversary, the roaring lion who would seek to make us his willing prey. Now, the second area is our homes. You know, it's a great field of attack today, isn't it? Because from the book of Genesis, we know that the very first institution that God created and established before he ever created the state or even his church as an organization the very first institution was the family. And it's always been an important part of God's economy within his covenant, and therefore the evil one comes and he targets the Christian home as an area where he will create turmoil and trouble and dissension and difficulty so that he may destroy it as the basic building block of society and of his church. Beloved, your children, if you have any, are to be trained in the things of God. Your home is to be the place where young men and women are raised like plants, as the psalm says, around the table, glorious in their freshness and beauty of godliness, because they are part of God's covenant heritage. 
It is to be the place where a strong influence emanates out through your family upon others. And because of this, it is the front line of Satan's attack. And I say to you this morning, oh, beware of Satan's insidious influence into your home. It comes by the television. It comes by the radio. It comes by the music that you may allow your older children to listen to. Have you sat down with your children and watched the programs they watch? Listen to the music they listen and then lovingly correct them from a biblical perspective in that which is clearly harmful and wrong so that Satan does not gain access into your home as a place of influence. And in our marriages, we need to be on guard. You know, today in the United States, I'm told that almost 50% of marriages end in divorce. I think it's exaggerated somewhat, but it's an alarming statistic partly because we no longer think biblically about the divine institution of marriage, and partly because we will not resist the devil when he comes in to break up that sacred institution that God has established. Oh, he comes in by materialism. He comes in by busyness. He comes in by apathy. But that central part of our Christian lives might be gradually weakened until he has gained the ascendancy. But the third area quickly on this is the church. Beloved, he can come amongst us in the congregation as a ravening lion so easily, can't he? Divide and conquer is his strategy so often. He comes in, for instance, by division because he knows that the church is the place supremely and corporately which is the center of the worship of the living God, the center of evangelism, the center of overseas missions, the center of Christian education. And if he can get a footing in here, how much damage he can wreak. And the devil doesn't want God worship. He doesn't want souls saved. He doesn't want missionaries sent out. He doesn't want the Bible clearly and faithfully taught, Lord's Day by Lord's Day. And so, as one of the Puritans says, he sometimes slanders God to man and sometimes slanders men to God and sometimes he slanders men to men. And he brings in division amongst us. And his aim is to silence the confession that we make to Christ and stop men focusing upon him and how much we should be on our guard. He comes in to disrupt in the church. He comes in to divert in the church. Take our attention away from that which is central and put it on that which is on the circumference and peripheral. And beloved in the church, we need the spirit of Nehemiah that said when his enemies came to him, come down and meet with us. He said, I will not come down, for I am doing a great work. And that's the spirit 
in which we are to resist him, beloved, in the church. He's a master of these tactics. And it is not for nothing that the apostle warns us, in spite of all our privileges and advantages and attainments, be on your guard, for he is real. Now thirdly, as I draw to a close, what is the Bible's prescription for his defeat? What is the Bible's prescription for the church's progress, for the gospel going forth in the power of God, unrestricted? And the answer is, you notice, that we are to resist him, verse 9 at the beginning. He is to be resisted and opposed. Now it's very significant because other forms of temptation in the Christian life, according to the New Testament, are not so much to be resisted directly as we are to flee from them. For instance, flee from immorality, Paul counts. Amen.